Hi, this is Yolanda and I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And this episode is from chapter 11 and the subheading is Aftermath on page 92. Enjoy. To pick up a few more threads of memory which cluster about the Civil War, I may say it seems rather strange that notwithstanding I kept track of events as they happened and were published in the papers, and the further fact that I travelled about quite a little in my missionary labours, I did not see during the entire four years of the conflict a single company of men in uniform or under arms. Neither did I see, to my knowledge at the time, any general of the army. Once I saw a man on horseback some distance away who was in uniform and wore a chapeau, but carried no arms. I was afterwards told he was a General Smith. What one, I do not know. He had been stationed at Kukuk to organise, outfit and train enlisted men. It was not until after Sherman's famous march to the sea that I had the thrill of seeing Union troops under arms and then the men had been mustered out. It was when the soldiers of the 39th and 40th Wisconsin regiments passed through Chicago. They had been receiving the ovations of the entire countryside as they passed through on their way back home. I stood on the sidewalk and watched them as they marched in open order, their serried ranks occupying the whole street from curb to curb. The steady tramp of the unbroken lines impressed me deeply with the strength and vigour of the muscle-hardened men of war. Tall, strong, virile, lean, straight, sunburned, with eyes shining like stars under their visors. Fascinated, I gazed upon them as they streamed past me and could but exclaim, no wonder these men went clear through to the sea. They seemed to typify the unvulnerable power of the very republic itself, that nation which, as I so fervently believed, had been divinely instituted and divinely sustained from inception as a cradle for the principle of human liberty. As I recall those days and think of the long drawn out strain upon the resources of the nation and the final breakup of the cessation movement under the pitless pelting from the veterans of the North fighting for the unity of their country and incidentally for the removal of the odium of human slavery from their national history, I am even now uncertain how to rate and value all the impressions made upon me at the time even though I definitely sense their great influence upon my character. Some may remember the hesitancy and doubt which followed the apparent success of the southern forces for the first two years of the struggle, and the relief felt when Alce S. Grant left his little Galena town, went to Springfield and offered his services to his country. He was given a command to go to St. Louis and protect the stores there from being confiscated by the Confederates 
and the command was accompanied by expressed regret that he could not be furnished with transportation to that post of duty. Grant had been a soldier in the in the United States services in Mexico, and was acquainted with Jefferson Davy Davis, then a colonel in charge of a Mississippi regiment. With marvelous assurance and confidence, this humble soldier from the Illinois Prairie town got his men together, accomplished their transportations to Alton and thence to St. Louis, and inducted them into their task with all the efficacy of training soldiers in active warfare. This manner of discharge, this manner of discharging his commission was a surprise to some, but they were obliged to recognise the fact that another able officer had been discovered one who was capable of taking the lead in affairs of war and willing to do so when needed. Grant reached his destination in time to prevent further loss of army supplies and managed to take prisoners, a large number of southern men who were preparing for aggressive service. Assigned command in the south and southwest, he began operations along the Mississippi River and accomplished wonders. Soon Island Number 10 and Memphis and Visburg and subsequently Forts Henry and Donaldson yielded to his command or demand of unconditional surrender, words which formed a fitting and popular alliteration of the initials of his name. A wonderful revulsion of feeling took place all over the north, when the news came through the press to the remotest hamlets that the command of the entire United States Army had been given to this illustrious Illinois general, the common opinion was, now something will be done. It had seemed that Scott, Burnside, Meade, McClellan and others had been trifling with affairs, but everyone felt a degree of confidence in this man of iron from the Midwest Plains, who had received his training in the United States schools of war and felt assured that he was to be, under President Lincoln, the very man for the hour to guide the armies to victory. History has recorded how, without hesitation, doubt or fear, he took up the gauntlet where others had left, left it to lie and with efficacy and fairness to all in the spirit of the cause pushed the war to a successful termination. To me, there seemed something very admirable about the character of this man. I have often compared him with Washington, Napoleon, Blucher, and other great generals of history. To my mind, his nature was quite clearly illustrated by the words of Blucher's famous order given when Napoleon had received the report of army engineers that a passage over the Alps was barely possible. Let us go forward then. For this terse reply, Blutcher received the sobriquet of Old Forward, a name which might with equal aptitude be applied to General Grant, who was always eager, ready and fully prepared to push forward. He knew quite as well as Sheridan what war was like, though he did not express it perhaps as profanely as did Sherman or Thomas. He knew the issue was simply a matter of time for the great material resources of the government added to the constantly 
augmented forces of liberty loving men who believe this country should be a free soil for free men and were willing to fight for it to be so could not fail to bring ultimate victory to the union cause once when asked what he thought would be the outcome of the struggle grant is said to have replied well our cat has the longest towel this statement while apparently irrelevant and trifling was full of thoughtful meaning and sound judgment for he knew the forces of the command of the government were practically unlimited and triumph thus inevitable my lifelines were not cast near the active scenes of the war with their many horrors and carnage and i count myself fortunate that i was not brought into actual contact with this with its most trying vicissitudes the problems it left in its wake however, were not few, and some of them were very, very serious and of a nature to affect every one of us. During the reconstruction period, many perplexing questions came up for settlement, and great patience and optimism were necessary on the part of those who wished for more rapid advancement. One oft-repeated question was, what will the Negro do for himself now that he has been granted his freedom? In 1866, when visiting the national capital, I was permitted a glimpse of some things which seemed to me to present an encouraging answer to that question. One day I saw on the sidewalk five young coloured women, aged possibly from 16 to 22, who were on their way home from school, all carrying books. They were of five distinctly different shades of colour, ranging from the intense black with kinky hair to the but slightly darkened quadroon, but all were bright and intelligent in appearance. I also noted a coloured boy, possibly 20 years old, sitting on the walk in front of a gentleman's house, engrossed in studying a common spelling book, which he wa- while he waited for his employer to come and mount the horse he was watching. I saw other Negroes similarly engaged in studying, and the impressions I received from these observations were that these coloured people recognised the fact that in the world of letters and education would be found strength and uplift for them, and they seemed ready to improve their new-found opportunities to tap that source. It seemed a favourable promise of the ultimate enlightenment and culture of the race, and I was pleased to note these signs of their evident desire to advance. I'd always thought it foolish and unmanly for white men to argue that a Negro did not need opportunities for education. Such an attitude seemed to me to be either a deliberate attempt to override and corrupt what manhood might be left in the race after so many years of slavery, or it was a tacit confession of some jealousy or fear that if given equal opportunities, the Negro might become equal, if not superior, in intellectual attainments to his white competitor. I had I had no fellowship or sympathy with views which sought to keep an oppressed race from rising upon opportunity above the conditions with which such oppression had imposed upon it. I always said a Negro was as good as a white man if he was as good. This chapter may be wound up by recalling a tragedy which happened the tragedy which happened in the spring of 1865 
It is remembered that when Abraham Lincoln went to Washington to take his office as President of the United States after his election in 1860, it was deemed a wise precaution to have him convey by strategy through the city of Baltimore, where feelings against him ran so high it was feared he might receive personal injury. In the midst of such prejudices, the great man entered upon that brief season of high service to his country, and it was in the midst of much misunderstanding and suspicion and unfaithfulness on the part of those about him that he carried on during the trying years. Then there came the time when hatred of fanaticism wrought its final havoc with him, and he was stricken by the hand of an assassin, a noble and useful life snuffed out and a nation plunged in mourning. In contrast to the necessity in 1861 for secrecy in passing through the country, when his body was returned to his Illinois home over the same route, it was accompanied by uniformed guards and greeted with demonstrations of grief all along the way. In the interim of those years which had passed, he had reached the zenith of his contribution to his country. Sorry, a little bit of emotion there. He's, um, I just think about how he succeeded in achieving something amazing. In the interim of those years which had passed, he had reached the zenith of his contribution to his country and had won from them an appreciation of his character and worth as man, citizen and official. There was mourning all over the land. Every city and hamlet held memorial services for the slain president, timing their observation to coincide with the funeral rites in Springfield. Although I was not then an inhabitant of Plano, the committee on arrangements there invited me to deliver the commemorative service in that place to be held in harmony with the general plan. I was then a comparative stranger to most of the people gathered to listen to me, but did the best I could, and if cordial and hearty commendation afterwards was an indication managed to please most of them. Two of the two of my brethren, however, criticised a statement I made relative to Mr Lincoln, being the most universally mourned of any man of known history, since not a nation in harmonious harmonious relations with the United States but had half mastered their flags, and held public services in his honour. My brethren thought I had forgotten Christ in making that statement. I had to ask them, how many nations mourned the death of Jesus? How many of his own home and nation mourned? Just who were the mourners left at the foot of the cross? Mary his mother, John and Magdalene. Were they a wide concourse of mourners? Besides my brothers, I was referring to a man, a citizen, and not a man who was of a God. Indeed, if we consider it rightly, we should not mourn the death of Jesus at all, since by the fact of his death and resurrection, he gave us proof of his divinity, that he had been sent by the Father to show us the way for our own redemption and resurrection. Then they asked my my pardon and conceded that they had not thought the matter through correctly, viewed in that light. The memorial service for President Lincoln impressed me very seriously for, as I have tried to describe, the whole experience of the war period of our nation 
our nation's history had stirred me to the depths of my soul, witnessing to me that they were portious, portentous and strongly corroborative of those purposes of God for the nation which he had revealed to his servants, the prophets, not only of ancient and Book of Mormon times, but laterly, laterly as well. That is the end of chapter 11. The next episode will be chapter 12. Thank you for listening.